And there's no better way to tell that story than right here in the Navajo Nation. Let me just show you what it looks like on a Sunday afternoon, okay? The grocery store is closed. The McDonald's is closed. The McDonald's drive-thru is closed. The story here in the Navajo Nation just a couple months ago was of a raging, out-of-control pandemic. In May of 2020, the American Indian Reservation between Arizona and New Mexico, the Navajo Nation, made national headlines. Early on, of course, everybody uh, heard that per capita Navajo Nation was hit hard with uh, COVID positive. In our national lead, coronavirus is ravaging the Native American community, especially the Navajo Nation. The nation's now reporting nearly 4,000 COVID-19 cases in a population of 175,000, which means they surpassed New York and now have the highest infection rate per capita in the U.S. Frontline Navajo workers, many of them relatives and neighbors of those infected, rushed to save the most vulnerable. Already, residents of the Navajo Nation face higher rates of pre-existing conditions, and that tied into the even bigger obstacles, crushing poverty and deafening silence from the federal government. Though the federal government funds tribal health care, as agreed on in centuries-old treaties, it does so reluctantly and very, very slowly. West definitely want to see those dollars out the door. Can you tell me when the $8 billion for tribal governments will be distributed? Who's going to pick up the tab? Are we going to hold these people accountable? While most states received billions of dollars in federal assistance, the Navajo Nation was left with barely any resourcing, even having to sue the Treasury Department for the release of funds. The counties and the states say, oh, it's the federal responsibility, and the feds say, well, it's the state's and the county's responsibility. We don't have the, the best health care system on the Navajo Nation. It should be regarded as a national embarrassment. And while they waited and waited and waited, the Navajo Nation lost more and more members to COVID. The CDC recommended diligent handwashing several times a day, but many Navajo homes don't even have access to running water. The CDC also suggested grocery shopping for two or even three weeks at a time to avoid exposure. But many Navajo families can't afford that amount of food. The CDC clearly hadn't visited the Navajo Nation because its recommendations were clearly not made with these community members in mind. COVID-19 has opened a Pandora's box of something that's always been there, major inequities. COVID-19 was another hardship the Navajo people were forced to endure, along with most other American Indian tribes across the country, who were infected at disproportionately higher rates and received disproportionately less help from the United States government. That was early spring. But then something happened on the Navajo Nation. While the rest of the country struggled to contain the virus, the residents of the reservation, without the proper infrastructure, adequate funding, or critical care capacity, flattened their curve. How hard they've worked to get their numbers under control, but also to see the resilience that's there on the Navajo. Real lockdowns, much tougher than the rest of the country. Exactly. You see people here wearing masks with 100% compliance. Leaders also set up strict curfews every night at 8 p.m. Look at the Navajo Nation as a case study. Listen to your professionals. I, I wish that the, the administration up in D.C. would do the same. Even the states around us would do the same. If nothing else, 
This flattened curve speaks to the resilience of the Navajo Nation. But it's important to understand that they flattened their curve not because of their relationship with the federal government, but in spite of it. This relationship was crafted centuries ago and is constantly reinforced as a means to hold American Indians apart from the rest of the United States. In that way, these communities are simultaneously neglected and exploited. More and more, it is being called the Navajo Nation. I'm Elliot Williams, and this is Made to Fail. Inadequate um, access to healthcare, inadequate access to water, to basic public health infrastructure. The series takes you state by state through the policies, the programs, the systems that have been designed to let us down, both in the good times and the times we face now. The Trump administration is moving to partially roll back yet another Obama-era environmental rule. I see over here, Trump digs coal. Look at that, Trump digs coal, that's true. We're not just following this roadmap of failure through the country. We're looking for a way out. Everything that people read about in our history books, oh, that's so sad, that happened to the Indians. That never ended. It's still here. You can't be Native and you can't be from a reservation without having some sort of connection to water. This is Emma Robbins. I grew up on the Navajo Reservation on the western side. I am from Tuba City, Arizona, where I grew up and where my family still lives. But my dad's family is from Cameron, Arizona. The Navajo Nation spans the states of Arizona and New Mexico. It holds urban cities and rural towns. It's made up of both desert and rivers. There are different dialects, traditions, foods, depending on which side of the reservation you grow up on. But no matter where you're from, there's one unifying factor. Water. An estimated 40% of the people who live here don't have access to running water. And the sink, what does the sink do? We don't use the sink because there's no running water. It's just there. Yeah. I was very fortunate to grow up with running water in my home and where most people at the time in my childhood didn't have running water, including my grandparents and my aunts and uncles. On the reservation today, it's estimated that at least one in every three Navajo people live without access to running water. But that number is probably higher. It's hard to put that in perspective, how critical running water is to quality of life. Water access isn't something most Americans ever have to think about. Bathing, going to the bathroom, proper hydration, these are basic needs that become massive hurdles without water readily available. On the reservation, it's not uncommon for residents to drive over 50 miles with gallon jugs for clean water. Contrast that to the 200 gallons of water a week the average American uses right from their homes. When you're a kid, you don't realize that that's not okay. As an adult, Emma only spends some of her time on the reservation. She bases the rest of her time out of L.A. COVID-19 has obviously restricted her traveling, but she still goes to see her family on the reservation as often as she can. She's an artist in L.A., and her work serves far more than just an aesthetic purpose. My work is very centered around um, the indigenous experience in the 21st century and specifically around treaty rights. There are century-old treaty rights between nearly all American Indian tribes and the United States government. 
While the Navajo Nation and other indigenous communities are very much a part of the United States, they are legally their own sovereign nation, which makes the history and governance of places like the Navajo Nation a little more fraught. Because they're their own independent nation, the Navajo Nation operates under treaties with the federal government, which is supposed to offer the Navajo people certain basic rights. Rights like access to health care in times of a pandemic, rights like access to clean water, rights like protections from environmental injustices. But these rights often go ignored, or when it comes to environmental protections, they're often disregarded entirely. Emma gives an example of this in one of her projects. She calls it 18 Lost Treaties. These documents were lost, literally lost by the federal government. And in the mid-1900s, these documents, and by documents I mean very important treaties um, that changed lives and cultures for tens of thousands of people, were found locked away in a Senate desk. And, you know, these treaties have not been rectified yet, and they're not being honored. And though the Navajo Treaty is legally recognized, it's hard to argue that it's really being honored. Every quality of life for every Navajo is inhumane. This is Arizona Senator Jamesita Peshlakai. She's a member of the Navajo Nation, and she actually lives in Cameron, where Emma was born. The treaty has been broken. To understand the struggle of the Navajo people and how the U.S. government has failed them, we've got to take a look at the bigger history between the two of them. And to do that, it's important to understand the culture and traditions of the indigenous community. When you talk to Navajo people like Senator Peshlakai, it's easy to draw parallels between the fight they're going through today and their original creation story. It's a story about the land and, as humans, our relationship and stewardship of it. As the senator puts it, The Navajo creation story is really an account of human evolution. In the Navajo creation story, in the very beginning, there was first man and woman. And they passed through four different worlds to the world we all occupy today. And as they passed into each new world, there was more, well, world. So we travel through the worlds each time, being forced out of one world and into the next by evolution. From atoms and material to vegetation and animals. As first man and woman passed into the fifth world, the world we occupy today, they did so up through the land. We all evolved into who and what we are today as human beings. And we live by the knowledge of knowing the four previous worlds. So as the story goes, the Navajo people came from the land. And ever since then, they've cherished it. Here's Emma again. The creation story is one of our cornerstones. You know, it's it's interesting too as I get older and I read other First Nations or Indigenous peoples' creation stories and how similar they are in many ways. Perhaps one of the biggest similarities across Indigenous group creation stories is this direct connection and respect and love for the land they live on. I don't know. When I think of home, it's it's not like I can describe it verbally. Like, that's where my roots are. You know, Navajo's 
when you're born and you're a baby, um, you bury your umbilical cord in like a sheep corral and it's where your home is and that place will forever be your home, right? That land. I always feel that connection there. Anytime that I come past our sacred mountain or anytime that I enter those lands, it's like I just feel like I'm in my skin almost. Which is why one of the great ironies of the Navajo struggles is how much the United States has broken and subjugated that land. It was on that land, in what we think of today as Arizona, where the Navajo's century-long struggle for environmental rights and basic human rights began. During the 1860s, federal army officers were engaged in suppression campaigns of Native Americans. The U.S. government saw this Western territory as a strategic investment in addition to being coveted land for settlements. Led by the American frontiersman Kit Carson, troops began sweeping through Navajo land with orders to shoot on sight any male Navajo and capture women and children. Throughout the campaign, troops destroyed the land, burning homes, killing livestock, and ruining crops. Professor David Wilkins, a Jepson School of Leadership professor at the University of Richmond and a member of the Lumbee tribe, picks up the story from here. Kit Carson went in and basically defeated a majority of the Navajos by his scorched earth campaign in which he literally destroyed all the livestock, all the orchards, all the uh, agricultural products that the Navajos depended on for, for their subsistence. And most Navajos eventually capitulated and they were rounded up and marched to Fort Sumner. Fort Sumner, New Mexico was a 400-mile walk from the Navajo Nation. Many Navajos died at the hands of Carson's men along the way. And while it was promised to serve as a reservation, Fort Sumner really resembled something like a prisoner of war camp. One black-and-white photograph of the camp shows Navajos wrapped in blankets sitting on the dusty ground as armed soldiers stand above them. 10,000 Navajos were held there for four years, and many died there. And while they were there, even in that concentration camp, they were continuing to fight and to resist and eventually convinced uh, federal lawmakers uh, through the treaty process that they signed that gave them the right to return to their reduced homeland uh, in the Four Corners area. The Navajo people had already signed several treaties with the Spanish, the French, and the U.S. government. But this one would be their last treaty and the one that's still recognized today. What it really did was it firmly established the government-to-government relationship between the Navajo Nation and the federal government. This relationship resulted in the following remarkable promises. Article 11, they would return home. Article 6, their children would receive quote-unquote traditional American educations in brand new schoolhouses. Article 2, they would be the sole owners of their land's rights. The Navajos, like every other tribe that signed treaties with the federal government, Uh, rely upon that treaty as their sort of foundational document in their intergovernmental relationship with the United States. And so it's been uh, an absolutely critical vehicle that for the Navajos affirm their inherent sovereignty and their, their national status. And on their face, treaties seem like a good thing. 
There's no other group in the United States that has this direct relationship with the federal government. David Wilkins thinks that this gives Native people an elevated political status. At least, it should. In theory, we should be the most protected class of persons in the United States. And yet, it's our indigenous citizenship that ultimately allows the federal government to manipulate us and our rights and our lands in a way that it can't do to anybody else. You know, I think with the signing of the treaty and, um, you know, and being marched on the long walk, it's something where it's like the number one thing that I think our people felt when we talk about these stories, which is often difficult, is it was being ripped away from our land. And that's problematic as is. But what's perhaps even more problematic is that the United States government can't even honor the flawed treaty to begin with. The reason the federal government pays little heed to the 1868 treaty, or any treaty with Native peoples for that matter, lies in a plenary power doctrine. This doctrine legally justifies the federal government's breach of basic human rights from tribes of all nations. Because the federal government since the 1880s has claimed what the courts call plenary power, that is the ultimate power, uh, virtually absolute power to do whatever the United States thinks is in the best interest of Indian people. And Native peoples, we have no way to counteract that plenary power. All we have, we can raise moral uh, suasion and try to remind the federal government of their treaty obligations. I think it's something now that it's up to us to not only make sure that we get to stay on our land, but that we're protecting it and we're not letting our water or our air be contaminated. Coalition of Native and environmental groups have protested the decision, saying uranium mining could strain scarce water sources in the desert area. Members of the Navajo nations are all too familiar with the dangers posed by uranium mining because their tribal lands are littered with abandoned mines. Water used to run underneath through the mines and all that. It used to be clean, but when they started mining it, that's when it, the water started being contaminated with all that dirt and the uranium. Historically, um, coal, oil, uh, natural gas, uranium, uh, these have been minerals and resources that corporate America has wanted. When the federal government forced tribes and tribal people to live on the most remote and desolate areas of the United States, um, they did not know that they were placing people on natural resources reserves. Across the Navajo Nation, the land is riddled with destructive remnants of broken promises. These destructive remnants are the product of deals brokered by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. This bureau has been around since 1824 and is under the Department of the Interior. Indian citizens take an active part in directing their own group affairs. They learn from the helpful and freely given attention of their white neighbors. This was the bureau that was supposed to oversee all of those promises that came from the 1868 treaty. The BIA arranges business deals on native land and is obligated by law to negotiate the best possible terms for the Navajo people. 
But instead, the agency appears to make it cheap and easy for outsiders to exploit native resources while turning a blind eye to the harm it causes the population. Local, regional, and national conservation groups are challenging the U.S. Department of Interior's decision to extend operations of the Navajo mine and the Four Corners power plant for another 25 years. I think the most direct harm comes from contaminate water, but I think the most devastating is probably the uranium mining impacts on DNA and the genes of the Native American because you can't see it. The uranium mines here in Cameron, we still have open pit mines that have never been remediated. Native American governed territory, rich in uranium, but ruined by the U.S.'s demand for it. In a deal brokered by the BIA between 1944 and 1986, mining companies blasted 4 million tons of uranium out of Navajo land. The federal government purchased the ore from these mining companies to make atomic weapons. As the uranium craze slowly petered out, more than 500 open mine pits were left to contaminate the land and the people who lived on it. And I never really connected the dots when I was growing up. You know, in my mind, uranium was like this yellow rock. I never even knew if that was the actual color. I never really knew what it looked like. When it was explained, it was something like, you know, these are areas that we don't go to because they're not safe. Uranium, of course, was a huge issue in Navajo country beginning in World War II. And the uranium mining and the after effects of that have been devastating to Navajo health. Cancer rates are higher there than just about any other place in the country. And, and uranium tailings are still evident uh, across the reservation. Uh, a lot of people die from, have died from cancer here in my community. And it was definitely something that I didn't realize until my grandmother got very sick and had stomach cancer and passed um, in 2000. And you know, after that, it dawned on me that she got stomach cancer because of uranium. And whether that was in the air or water, it's something that really affected me and my family. Indigenous groups, as well as other underprivileged communities across the country, face incredibly high risks of pollutant contamination for a multitude of reasons. We'll come back to some of those reasons in a bit. But we should focus on why fossil fuel and mining companies have essentially had their open pick of native land. Why these companies, who have a deep profit motive, face very few obstacles to their success. Meanwhile, Native Americans face endless obstacles to protect their land and their bodies. This is mostly because fossil fuel companies have friends in high places, particularly within the Department of the Interior. Secretary of Interior is supposed to be the trust agent for Native peoples, all 574 nations. And yet the Department of Interior also works directly with mines. It works with national forests. It works with the timber industry. That is a profound problem when you think about that. The constitutional clause, which says that the only power that the Congress has to deal with tribes is through commerce. And so there's that inherent conflict of interest that rarely works in native uh, interest because our interests don't. We just can't quite measure up to the power of corporate America. 
Uh, and so that's an ongoing and, and huge problem. And the Trump administration has just exacerbated that. Uh, and he's emboldened corporate America to be more exploitative of indigenous uh, resources. President Trump is expected to finalize a rollback to one of the nation's bedrock environmental laws Wednesday in a move critics say will be particularly harmful to minority communities. The changes to the 1970s... You'll have plenty of those Democrats coming over and you're going to say, no, sir, no, thank you. No, ma'am, perhaps, ma'am. It may be Pocahontas. Remember that. For the first time in over 40 years today, we're issuing a proposed new rule under the National Environmental Policy Act to completely overhaul the dysfunctional bureaucratic system. In April of 2019, the Senate voted to confirm a new Secretary of the Interior. His name is David Bernhardt. He took the place of Ryan Zinke, who is still undergoing several different ethics investigations for opening up acres upon acres of land to fossil fuel companies. And Bernhardt hasn't done much better than his predecessor. Since Bernhardt joined the agency, the Department of Interior has made at least 15 policy changes or decisions specifically requested by his former clients that benefited them. Yes, we're seeing a raft of favors, both large and small, being granted. Everything from specific projects getting green lights to larger policies that are either being rolled back from the Obama administration or moved forward in the Trump administration. Ideally, you wouldn't have a former oil lobbyist at the helm of the department that's supposed to uphold Native American treaties and protect the environment. Because that guy is never going to prioritize the needs of Native Americans. It goes beyond the Department of the Interior, though, all the way up to Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. Oil lobbyists and former fossil fuel executives continue to find comfy chairs and high positions under the current administration. But the government's falling down on its agreement is only one side of the problem. The federal government appeases fossil fuel companies who are, at the end of the day, focused on the bottom line. When capitalism has its corporate mind set on a particular resource, it's going to bring all of its power to bear on that. And tribes fight as, as mightily as they can, armed with the few tools that they have, but ultimately, their strongest tool is, you know, we haven't given our consent or we have a treaty that guarantees us this. Uh, or there is a trust relationship which says that you will abide and exercise good faith always toward us. But those pale in comparison to the power and the force of, of corporate America, of the doctrine of plenary power, which says that Congress knows what's best for any country. Uh, and can do whatever it needs to do. If it means breaking a treaty, we'll break the treaty. The plenary power doctrine, which has roots across the U.S. government, was created all the way back in 1846. And in this context, it was the product of a growing movement to increase federal power to regulate Indian lives. As a piece of the doctrine puts it, the government has exercised its power over this unfortunate race in the spirit of humanity and justice and has endeavored by every means in its power to enlighten their minds and increase their comforts and to save them, if possible, from the consequences of their own vices. By memorializing the vision of this movement in law, the plenary power doctrine provided the U.S. government with powerful legal, 
and moral ammunition in ways that continue to resound in the courts. Today's newcomer can enjoy the city's benefits only if he is willing to give the same hard work that newcomers of many races have given before him. The plenary power has allowed the federal government to justify far too many injustices, all under the guise that it protects rather than harms. One solution, one clear solution, could be to just end the plenary power as it exists today. By overturning this doctrine, all the broken treaties, which really are just broken promises, could theoretically be corrected. Because in recent years, the federal government has been increasingly drawing on these doctrines to facilitate big corporations' extraction of natural resources without any oversight. The capitalism, it is only good when there's losers. Somebody has to lose, and unfortunately, in most times, it's the Native American. The federal government has set up a system for indigenous people that says it protects their sovereignty, but just doesn't. In fact, this plenary power, the Commerce Clause, even the original treaties, they all set up indigenous groups to believe that the federal government knows best and will do what's best, all the while trapping them in yellow tape and red lines. Sure, indigenous people are the sole governors over their land until the U.S. government says they're not. And clearly, what government, at both the federal and state level, thinks is best nearly always seems to align with the interest of fossil fuel companies. There's a great day for American workers and families, and today we're unleashing American energy and clearing the way for thousands and thousands of high-paying American energy jobs. Many Navajo people are living in third-world conditions in the middle of the United States. Clean, beautiful coal. And we're putting miners back to that mentality doesn't exist in a vacuum, either. It sets a precedent for state and local governments, too. Not just in the Navajo Nation, or even on indigenous reservations for that matter, but in underprivileged communities across the country. The reason to me that you really have environmental injustice is because of what agencies are doing at the state level. That's where the rubber meets the road. This is environmental health scientist Dr. Shakobi Wilson. I mean, this is the thing, whether it be a natural disaster, a technological disaster, or a biological disaster, you know, vulnerable populations are hit first and worst. Dr. Wilson works not only as a professor at the University of Maryland, but as a frontline advocate for environmental justice issues. Environmental justice is somewhat of an emerging field, but it holds an intersection of concerns at the heart of the Navajo Nation's story. The environmentalist movement, in, in many ways, follows in a legacy or is an extension of the human rights movement. So you think about the human rights movement being a, a, a river, the environmental justice movement is a stream within that river, right? It's connected to the larger movement for human rights. And so the, the framing of environmental justice, one part of it is this disproportionate burden of environmental hazards and that social justice movement against that, right? And making sure that communities speak with their own voices. That's an important point. Environmental rights are human rights. And a lot of America's black, brown, and indigenous communities were denied those rights long before COVID-19. You got a lot of communities 
across the country that are dealing with, you know, toxic hazards, right? From indigenous brothers and sisters dealing with pipelines, uh, uranium mining, you know, extraction. You got brothers and sisters in the Gulf Coast who are dealing with hurricanes, but they deal with toxic hazards every day. Toxicants that not only can impact your respiratory system, so cause asthma, but can cause cancer, impact the development of a fetus, right? It can impact your DNA, can mutate your DNA. These, these are the conditions that communities I'm talking about living in. Dr. Wilson says it's no surprise that the same communities who live in these types of environments are disproportionately affected by COVID-19. So communities that have a lack of access to food infrastructure, communities that are overburdened by environmental hazards and have poor air quality, for example. Roughly 70% of Americans who live under the worst air quality conditions are people of color. When you include indigenous populations, that number is undoubtedly higher. And new studies have shown that long-term exposure to air pollution increases the chances of dying from COVID-19 by 15%. Studies have shown that black and brown folks are disproportionately burdened by uh, environmental hazards. So yes, we knew this has got higher risk of COVID-19. That was by design. We talk about structural inequalities. It's not structural. It is structured inequality in this country. Racism is baked into the fabric of this country, and it plays out in different ways in housing policies, transportation policies, economic policies, food policies, criminal justice policies, and health policies. Dr. Wilson says he and his colleagues don't talk about the COVID-19 pandemic on its own very much. Instead, they discuss our reality today as a syndemic. So it's basically, the syndemic means when you have multiple pandemics at one time. So we just don't have a, a viral pandemic, you know, because of SARS-CoV-2. We've had racism pandemic since the founding of this country. The genocide of indigenous peoples, the enslavement of, of Africans. You also have a pandemic of, of toxic capitalism. As Reverend Lawson said in the eulogy for uh, Representative John Lewis, you know, we, we have a country with plantation capitalism. It's, it's economic exploitation. You also have a, a, a pandemic of toxic pollution. Then you also have a toxic climate. Climate change disproportionately impacts these same groups. Climate change both causes environmental injustice and reveals environmental injustice. All of that is to say there's a lot more at play here than just the coronavirus. So much of it stems from where you live and the environmental injustices you may face there. We have communities that are used as sacrifice zones for pollution. Place matters. Your zip code is more important than your genetic code. Just like the Navajo creation story tells us, everything is tied to the land. We need to help people understand the value of land, how land is culture, how land is power, how land is health, how land is wealth. When a presidential administration primarily values the land as something to mine, frack, or drill, then it won't be protected, nor will the people living on it. Even the Environmental Protection Agency can't and often isn't willing to stop that. President Trump dismantled a number of Obama-era initiatives during his first year in office, and that could eventually include a ban on uranium mining near the Grand Canyon. 
And the floodgates that were holding back the tide of corporations exploiting protected land and protected waters have been opened. Specifically, under the Trump administration, the EPA has greatly decreased what is regarded as protected water, opening the door for chemical companies to dump pollutants into waters that were previously under federal protection. Our country is blessed with incredible natural resources. I pledged to take action, and today I am keeping that promise. Now, under the Trump administration, I think we're at over 100 rollbacks of environmental rules and regulations. There's been fast-tracking projects. It's been like a drill-baby-drill administration, focused a lot on bringing life back into the coal industry. And and it's very much been pro-business, anti-environment, and environmental justice has really suffered under this administration. This is no less true during a syndemic. In fact, the Trump administration has rolled back dozens of environmental protections and manufacturing requirements during the COVID-19 outbreak. And the head of the EPA, Andrew Wheeler, has faced serious criticism from Congress because these rollbacks will directly affect already vulnerable communities. Yes and no, Mr. Wheeler. Black and brown communities are more likely to breathe dirtier air than white communities. Oh, that, that's... Um... There are certainly some environmental justice communities around the country where the, where the air quality is much worse than other areas, but there's also air quality... Um, Since the beginning of March alone, you have proposed or finalized eight different rules and guidance documents that would increase air pollution. Mr. Wheeler, you should be ashamed of yourself. Your agency should be ashamed of itself. But things weren't exactly ideal before 2017 either. We live in a country that often values profit over people. Coal over culture, wealth over health. Our systems bolster the interests of fossil fuel companies and often leave vulnerable communities to fend for their own justices, to fight for their own lives. Broken promises taint this land as much as any other pollutant. And now, as with nearly every problem we've highlighted in this series, the suffering looks almost irreversible for indigenous communities and for black and brown people throughout the United States, how is it possible to give back what they've already lost? We've been taking, 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 extracting, commodifying, devaluing those communities for decades. They deserve better, and that's a form of environmental reparations. So the first thing Dr. Wilson suggests as a possible solution is to grant the EPA a lot more power. We shall elevate the EPA to department level. I mean, that's one reason why the EPA was so easy to attack under this administration, but it's been attacked and undermined going back to Reagan. So maybe that's a solution. But if you remember how the Department of the Interior has treated the Navajo Nation, you'll know that just elevating the EPA to cabinet level won't be enough to protect all of the vulnerable American communities. Maybe it's time to rethink the Department of the Interior altogether. I think we need to change the mission of the Department of Interior. So the mission should be, we should preserve. It should be about preservation and conservation. So keep it in the ground. It should become the new mission of the Department of Interior. But it's bigger than just one department. To really bolster environmental justice, we have to address the mentality that the federal government harbors toward everyday communities. Any of these laws, if they protect the most vulnerable, most susceptible person, we would not have environmental injustice. 
We would not have environmental injustice in this country if our environmental rules and regulations protected everyone equally. So I think to a form of economic growth and development that is that does not harm people, we focus on connecting people back to land. We 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 take more of a human rights perspective. We everyone should have a right to clean air, clean water, affordable housing, safe housing, healthy food, right? A safe job. Those those are human rights. Those are basic amenities. It will take time to unwrap the bureaucracy of what the federal government has done. The federal government needs to do right by the people. And to do that, let me tell y'all something. You got black and brown frontline defense line communities who've been impacted by hazards, environmental racism, environmental slavery for decades. They've been in survival mode for decades. They've been very resilient for decades. And hopefully with a change administration, we'll see some of those reparations uh, uh, occur through the Climate Equity Bill, the Green New Deal, and also the Environmental Justice Act of 2020, which will probably be the Environmental Justice Act of 2021, and other things around economic growth, food access, healthcare access. That's what these communities need and that's what they deserve. Until the federal government decides to do what's right, vulnerable communities like the Navajo Nation will do what they've always done, overcome and solve their own problems, especially with people like Emma around. Because the thing is, Emma is an artist, but she has another job too. She's been the director of the Navajo Water Project, a program within the nonprofit Dig Deep, for over four years now. In its most simple form, I would say the Navajo Water Project is a human rights project because I think it's always important to remind people that water is a human right. The Navajo Water Project is a human rights project that works with communities through collaboration on the Navajo Nation to make sure that the 30% of Navajos who don't have safe running water in their homes get access to that. With 30% of the Navajo Nation not having access to running water, the Navajo Water Project had its work cut out for it even before COVID-19. But now there are even bigger challenges. With the influx of people coming back to the res because they've lost their jobs in cities or border towns or because they want to come back and take care of their family, that number is going up because these households are growing. When COVID first started, we had worked with Nestle to get 262,000 bottles of water, so individual gallons, sent to the reservation. And that was really great because it was an emergency and it was something that was needed ASAP to get safe packaged water to folks. Um, But obviously, bottled water is not the best solution and it's not the most sustainable. And so what we did was we figured out a way that we could do sort of a middle step between the full-on home water system installations, which are 1,200-gallon tanks, and then bottled water. So we've procured several hundred of these 275-gallon tanks, and we are committed to the end of the year filling up these tanks with safe water. During her time at the Navajo Water Project, Emma's had to reconcile the environmental justices she faced as a kid with the current threat of the pandemic. And the most important part of the project, she says, is to keep it community-based. It's just making sure that everything is really ready to go and that we're not just throwing a Band-Aid on and that there's no plan in place. 
So everything ties together, the community building relationships, the actual installations or the placement of the tank, making sure that we have a safe water source and that we're being collaborative and not just consentful because there's a huge difference when working with communities. And it's really important being a Navajo myself and thinking about what that looks like. It, we need to make sure that we're working with people from the community. She's working to provide a basic human right to her community, something the federal government promised to do centuries ago. These are things that the federal government should be responsible for. And they're not. And it's something that I and most of my staff have experienced our entire life. Emma shouldn't have to lead this project. She shouldn't have to build a new water system in a Navajo home every day. The Navajo Water Project, it shouldn't exist. And the Navajo Nation shouldn't have to flatten its COVID curve on its own either. Their resilience is beyond impressive. But many other vulnerable communities in the United States don't have the means to flatten their own curves. And these communities will continue to suffer. This is a problem born of poverty and neglect within the richest country on the planet. It is the epitome of environmental injustice, of a broken promise against our most vulnerable communities that demands to be redressed. Made to Fail is produced by The Hub Project, Goat Rodeo, and the Roosevelt Institute. From The Hub Project, executive producer is Laura Hatalski. Producers are Sasha Stone, Zach Price, Sophie Elliott, and Dan Crawford. Arkady Gurney is executive director. From the Goat Rodeo team, executive producer is Megan Nadolsky. Producers are Shar Dreyer and Zachary Frank. Ian Enright is the chief executive officer. From the Roosevelt Institute, our senior producer is Steph Sterling. Our host, that's me, is Elliot Williams. This episode was written by Shar Dreyer, Megan Nadolsky, Ian Edright, me, and the good people at The Hub Project. Special thanks to David Wilkins, Emma Robbins, Senator James Sita Peshlakai, and Dr. Shakobi Wilson. To learn more about the Navajo Water Project, visit their website at navajowaterproject.org. And Dig Deep has lots of projects going on, so for more information on them, visit digdeep.org. And to see more of Emma's artwork, check her out at emmarobbins.com. To learn more about how conservative policies have set up millions of Americans for failure in the face of a crisis, visit madetofail.org. Subscribe to Made to Fail on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app so you don't miss the next episode. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating or review and share it with your friends. And if you want to continue the conversation online, find us on social media. We're at Made to Fail Pod on Twitter, Made to Fail on Facebook, and Made to Fail Podcast on Instagram. Thanks for listening.